you have the Bible in your hands, the Bibles at the back as well, and turn with me to Exodus 20. We've been going through the Ten Commandments as part of our larger ongoing studies in the book of Exodus. We've been taking a commandment at a time. Uh, last week we looked at the commandment of you shall not murder, and we saw how it affected many parts of our lives. And uh, this week we come to the seventh commandment, which if you know your commandments is you shall not commit adultery. Um, and before we read the text in its context, would you bow your head and pray as we come to God's word? I certainly need prayer. The Lord our God, we pray that you would attend this reading and then the preaching of your holy word in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. Would you take your word and drive it deeply into our hearts and consciences that it may have life-transforming results, bringing us to Jesus and giving glory to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. Amen. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant word. And as last week, I'm very conscious that we can make theological statements and theological truths, but we must also be very mindful of pastoral sensitivity as well. And uh, like last week, we were talking about um, things like suicide and things like that. And it's one thing to have the word of God and to believe what it is true, but then there are times when we just need to weep with those who weep. So there's pastoral sensitivity that goes along with the truth. But we, stand, we, we live in a day where the truth is not told. And a tectonic shift, a tectonic shift has taken place in our world when it comes to answering the identity question, who am I? Who am I? Which is a vital question. And for most of our history, the way we answered that question had to do with lots of issues. 
I'm a Londoner. I'm a Northerner. I'm a plumber. I'm a lawyer. I went to university. My parents came from wherever. So identity has normally been on the lines of culture, ethnicity, politics, economics, education, employment, upbringing, and religion. They've helped us locate ourselves in the world and understand who we are. But today, you only got to look at social media for one day. The identity question is increasingly answered in terms of sexuality. And crucially, for the first time, the issues of gender and sexual orientation are being understood in a way that's completely different from the shape of our bodies. In a great deal of contemporary thinking, sexuality and gender are internal and freestanding, and they have nothing to do with the femaleness or the maleness of our anatomy. The old binary categories, male and female, that provide the fundamental operating system for the biblical view of human sexual identity have been eroded for significant portions of our contemporary society. So that means in our, the modern worldview, no one can tell me what my gender is. It is unique and specific to me, knowable only by me. Freestanding, independent of my anatomy, whether I'm male or female, some combination of both or neither has nothing to do with my body. I determine it. I define it. To understand the implications of that contemporary approach to this question. Because I think it used to be said about the Victorians, wasn't it, that the Victorians, that they spoke a lot about death, but they never spoke about sex. And I would say in our 21st century, we talk a lot about sex, but we don't talk very often about death. We deny it. We pretend it will never happen. We deny it. But instead, we've elevated sexuality and sex to the controlling place. Last week, I made the, the statement that I think that you know, when it comes down to violence on our TV screens, remember the, the philosopher who said that violence is everywhere on our TV screens, and we're not shocked by killing anymore on the screen. We're not shocked at all if we see somebody being murdered. In fact, we might miss it if it was part, not part of a film, because otherwise it wouldn't make a jolly good film. Well, I would argue that the same would go for sex. You know, the same, the, the same would go for sex. So that there are scenes that come into movies which I wouldn't dream of watching ten years ago. But now I find myself, well, that kind of ruins a good film, but most of it's all right, so we'll just fast forward it. Sex, you know, sexuality has become the control in place in our society. It's the central issue that defines our essential identity. And by making sexuality unique to each individual, our world has ensured that norms for sexual behavior must become redundant or totally individualistic and determined and defined by each person alone. We cannot say... Where can, why can this world, you know, why can, we can't say any longer, I would argue, that polygamy is wrong, polygamy is wrong. If it's just a preference. So why is it wrong? That's just who I am. You're oppressing me and denying my right to be who I am as I define it. 
Now remember that the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, deals much more with the narrow and precise question of marital infidelity. It's the heading of an entire category of sexual transgression. If you remember that fact, and suddenly it becomes clear that the seventh commandment appears in the eyes of our world to be the most obsolete and oppressive. It's obsolete, it's oppressive, it's primitive of all the prohibitions in the canon of biblical morality. And the person who must bear the most blame is Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus spoke extensively about the seventh commandment. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, this is what Jesus is saying, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. The seventh commandment speaks to lust. The seventh commandment condemns that second glance. The, second, the seventh commandment condemns that indulged fantasy. The seventh commandment speaks to the epidemic in our society of pornography. And yes, the seventh commandment prohibits sex outside marriage. The seventh commandment speaks to the abuse of or neglect of sex within marriage. The seventh commandment speaks to sexual sins of the heart and the imagination of sight. What you look at matters. What you say. Filthy jokes. The seventh commandment speaks to all of that. In other words, the seventh commandment just will not allow for the radically privatized sexual ethic that is the norm in our society. We went through a stage, didn't we, of um, privatizing everything. There are some now, I think, who probably want to nationalize everything. But the point being is the one thing we have privatized is sexuality. And there's a good case to be made that together with the tenth commandment, which deals with greed, this commandment is most out of step with the spirit of our age. And yes, unless we are tempted, unless we're tempted at the church, because I genuinely don't want to come across as standing on some kind of soapbox banging away. I just don't want to do that. Because unless we, if we think that the church is some kind of moral superior, it turns out that professing Christians are almost out of step with the ethics of the Seventh Commandment as the rest of the world. Um, I wrote to FIEC asking for some stats, but they haven't got back to me. But in the United States, I found the National Association of Evangelicals found 44% of millennials who identify as evangelical Christians have sex outside marriage. 44%. Tim Keller said of his Redeemer Church in New York, we are, just, we are just like the rest of the city. If I preach on sex, everyone gets real quiet and doesn't come. One survey said that 77% of Christian men aged eight, 18 to 35 look at pornography at least once a month. 35% of Christian men have had an affair this is not a problem just out there. This is a problem in the church. It's not just the world that is out of step with the seventh commandment. It is the church. It is us. It is me. 
Our culture is cruising along at high speed along the highway of a sexual revolution carrying many of the church along with it and the seventh commandment is a flashing red light. It is a stop sign. It is warning us of danger ahead. The seventh commandment is winsomely but wonderfully saying make a U-turn, go in a different direction. Now one of the reasons the seventh commandment has suffered this eclipse in the thinking of many Christians even dismissal as out of date and outmoded. And why it suffers, frankly, outright ridicule in our culture. If you stand up for what you believe in, which is, we still live in a free country, so we, we, we can say what we believe, you are vilified, you are humiliated, and people publish your address online, they give you death threats. They say that they'll come after your children. I, you know, I've, I, 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 I know pastors who've been told we're coming to get your kids because they say what the Bible says on this topic. But I suspect it is because of a failure for the church to present the seventh commandment in context with reasons. And that's why I want to say I'm not <laughs> standing on a soapbox because if we just read it merely and proclaim it and the preacher stands up and says, this is a bald prohibition. You shall not do this. Then we are exposed to the accusation of being prudish and phobic about sex and sexuality and the world hears it as just another weapon in the hands of a Christian killjoy who likes to equate holiness with misery. So that if you are holy, then you're miserable. But actually, actually, the opposite is true. And that's, that's why I want to present, try and present the seventh commandment in context with reason. Because if you trace the teaching of scripture on sex and marriage carefully enough, far from being an oppressive, prudish, killjoy, thou shalt not, the seventh commandment offers something incredibly beautiful and ultimately liberating. So let me just try and show you that under two simple headings and then we're done. The creation template for biblical sexuality, first of all. The creation template for biblical sexuality. In Genesis 1 verse 27, we're told that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We need to stand, we start from the truth that gender is given by God. We have to start from that truth. And we have to state that. Gender is given by God and it's vital we get this straight. It may seem elementary and basic and obvious perhaps, but it's that, it's that point that the biblical paradigm is most under attack in our world today. Gender is given by God. Maleness and femaleness are part of the givenness of the created order by God's design. Our gendered natures, natures reflect the image of God in their diversity as well as their compatibility. God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is, there is unity and diversity in God, and the way that that reality is reflected in human society is by making man in his image male and female which is tremendously affirming. 
You remember that when God made Adam, he declared it was not good for the man to be alone, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then God, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That is to say, when God made Eve, he made her emotionally and spiritually and physically compatible. And when God gave Eve away in the first marriage in human history, it was the groom who provided the music for the bridal procession. Do you ever think about that? Because bur- the groom burst into song when he saw his wife coming down the aisle, if he could pardon the application. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Adam is not merely reflecting the way that God made Eve from the ribbon inside. Adam is celebrating the union that God had created them to enjoy uniquely in one another. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Human sexual union is intended to be an intimate celebration and expression of the unity and diversity that God has brought into being when God joins a man and woman in marriage. That is its function, to, to tear, to remove sex from its context in marriage is to shatter and disfigure its meaning and to rob it of its value. That's why the seventh commandment addresses all manner of sexual sin under the heading specifically of adultery. When it might have, been, might have used any other form of sexual sin as a general category, it uses adultery. Because God intends us to teach us in the seventh commandment that marriage is central and normative and is the only appropriate context for sex and sexuality. That means to be faithful in understanding and expressing our sexuality requires us to recognize that gender and sexual identity are not invented by us, nor are they assigned to us, they are given to us by God. And we must learn in humility to accept our embodied selves as men and women and recognize that sex in the purposes of God is designed to cement the loving relationship of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. But far from being prudish or phobic, the biblical vision of sex, with its given those fundamental parameters, is remarkably positive and affirming. If you read the Song of Solomon, you'll see very quickly it's unashamedly affirming of intimacy in marriage. It is metaphorical as well, but you cannot say it is not it is not about the physical either. Even if it is purposefully metaphorical and modest in its celebration of romantic love, which by an aside ought to help us, instruct us on how we should speak about these things with appropriate decorum and modesty. Let me give you another example in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are not free to use our bodies as we please when it comes to sexual expression. God has a design which we must submit to and reflect. But secondly, the gospel meaning 
of biblical sexuality. Secondly, we need to understand not just the creation template, but the gospel meaning of biblical sexuality. The creation template and the gospel meaning. There are, as you know, different metaphors used in Scripture to describe how God relates to us and we to him. He is our Father. He is our Judge. He is our King. He is our Shepherd, and so on and so forth. But when the Bible intends to describe the special bond of redeeming love between God and his covenant people, wayward and fickle as they often are, he turns to the covenant of marriage as the primary metaphor. So, for example, Isaiah. God says to Israel, through the prophet Isaiah, 54 verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. In Jeremiah, when Judah dis disobeyed the Lord and they turned to idolatry, the Lord said to them, Jeremiah 3 verse 20, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. On the other hand, the prophet Hosea pictures a day when God's people come back to him. Hosea 2 and verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul takes up that Old Testament pattern using marriage as the image of God's relationship with his people. And he focuses the lens even more clearly on the identity of the bridegroom, quoting Genesis 2, 21. Ephesians 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The union of a husband and wife, do you see, is the great metaphor, is the great image of the redeeming love of God for sinners like you and me in Jesus Christ. And so he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The pattern and the template for our sexual intimacy and our marital fidelity is the purity and faithful love of Jesus for his bride, the church. And that is why sex and sexual intimacy is sacred. Casual sex is a contradiction in terms. It is an oxymoron. Because sex in God's purpose is a picture of the gospel of grace of a believing sinner's union with the Saviour. 
For sex is sacred. It can never be toyed with or treated flippantly or casually. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our union with Jesus, which we celebrate at the Lord's Supper, is not simply abstract and spiritual. It deals with our whole humanity, including the flesh and bones of our bodies. What we do with our bodies matter, because even our bodies are united to Christ. So Paul says, Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. What Paul is saying is sex is the symbol of our union with Jesus in the gospel. It is a sacred thing. And we cannot play with it or toy with it or treat it casually. So part of what it means to honour and serve the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully if we are Christians is to honour and serve our spouses faithfully for his sake. It is to flee sexual immorality for his sake. For our great maker is our husband and on Christ our great redeemer. And if we're going to take that seriously, for many of us, that will mean taking radical action. Which if you turn to Matthew 5 and Jesus' treatment of the seventh commandment, you see that's precisely what he prescribed. We read it earlier, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you're playing with fire. It is deadly. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Take radical action. Literally, cut it out. Deal with the source of your stumbling. If I could get very practical and concrete here. He is saying things, break off the inappropriate relationship that has become a snare to you. He is saying, dress modestly so as not to be a stumbling block to others. He is saying, speak carefully so as not to demean by our crude language what God has called sacred. He is saying, use an effective internet filter. Put it on all your platforms, on your phone, your tablet, at home and at work. Keep your eyes pure, get accountability. Take radical action. And if, as a word of pastoral counsel, none of you please understand that this is the obligation of Scripture, but as pastoral counsel. This is something that we ourselves have done. But I would urge for every parent to take important steps to secure online purity for their teenagers before there's a problem. Pornography is an epidemic in our society and it is targeting pre-teens increasingly. So what we do is <laughs> we charge our phones downstairs so there's no devices in the bedrooms or behind closed doors. And we claim the right to look at the phones anytime we wish. And there's no accounts that we can't access. See, the seventh commandment is, is serious. It's serious because 
as lovingly as, as I can say it, is, is to pursue purity for yourself, but for your household, for those entrusted to your care. Pursue purity when you're alone, when you're together, when you're single, when you're courting, when you're married. Do it because our maker is our husband. Because we have a saviour in Jesus Christ who loved us and he gave himself for us and we want to honour him well in our relationships. Well, that's a lot there, but what do we do when we fail? And we do fail. And let us be really clear, everybody has fallen. There is nobody here, no matter how terribly respectable, who has not broken the seventh commandment in their thinking or in their looking or in their doing. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The scriptures are un unambiguous in condemning the breaking of the seventh commandment. But then Paul says something simply stunning, a word frankly filled with wonder and hope for those of us who break the seventh commandment. Look at what he says, neither the sexually immoral, immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The Lord Jesus has been relentlessly faithful to his adulterous bride. That's what Hosea is saying. We are adulterers. We've transgressed the seventh commandment with our hearts and our eyes and our bodies, but Jesus loves his sinful, adulterous people. In Jesus, God has not forsaken you. He has taken the reproach of our sin. Our husband has loved his wife well and given himself up for us all, paying the penalty that our adultery deserves. Such was son of you. You look at pornography and you need help. You want to be faithful to Jesus, but you find yourself stuck in a pattern of behavior. Maybe you've had an affair or shattered your marriage, a broken man, a broken woman. Is there hope for you? Yes, there is hope. Yes, there is hope. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is a path out of the darkness, out of the shadows where you've been hiding into the light, a path unto pardon and cleansing. New hope, new life, right standing before God, a clean conscience. And it is a path that always starts at the cross. Stop hiding in the shadows, hoping tomorrow will be different while you indulge today. The truth about you is known, laid bare before the eyes of the God with whom we have to do. So to come back, it is start time to listen, listen into the scriptural GPS that says make a U-turn. Turn back to Jesus Christ. Turn back to him. Will you not do it now? Right now, in the quietness of your heart as you sit, Will you not turn back to him and cry out to him? Lord Jesus, make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And he will. Let us pray together. And so as we bow before you, King Jesus, 
We have business to do with you, so hear us as we confess our sin, as we acknowledge our need, and as we bend our knees at the foot of the cross. For Jesus' name, amen.